And good morning, church. Church gathered here in person, church gathering online, and whether you're watching this this morning in September on the 12th or whether it's at some later date, uh, it's wonderful to be able to have you joining us as we continue to make our way through this teaching series. We've been looking at some of the hard sayings of Jesus, and this morning's is a bit of a doozy. Uh, it's as tough as they get. And in order to frame it properly, uh, let's bring it up into current day. In fact, let's bring it up as currently as yesterday. We held funeral services along with one of our own dear families here. And we offered to each other in worship some of the great promises of God, the words of Jesus, blessed are those who mourn, they'll be comforted. John 3.16, I mean that, that mountaintop verse, for God so loved the world. You know the verse, that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. The words of Jesus again, I am the resurrection and the life. Those who believe in me will live even though they die. And for those who live and believe in me, it will be like they never die. And, and on it goes, Psalm 23, Isaiah, Psalm 121. But I'll guarantee you, this is a set of words that never gets read at the funeral. Let the dead bury the dead. It seems to me, in fact, that if Jesus were pastoring a church, likely it's not a church that would grow rapidly. He acts in just such a different way from most church leaders. People come to him and they say, Jesus, we're all in. We want to sign up. And, and Jesus says, now hold on just a second. Maybe you should take a step back and really think about what you're asking for. And sometimes his response even comes across as harsh or cold, and he takes potential new followers, and he sets them back on their heels. And that's exactly what happens today in this passage in Luke. He's just, he's so different from most church leaders. Not just church leaders, in fact, probably leaders of any institution, any movement that wants to inspire people and invite them to come be a part of it, come join up. We want to see our numbers grow. Leaders of movements, we want people to be attracted. We want to make it easy for them to enter. We want it to be something that they're excited to sign up for and they buy into. And so we come up with great recruitment slogans. Think of some of the great slogans you've heard of. Right? Be all you can be, slogan for the, the army, right? Live your dream, or see more, do more, be more. Well, here's Jesus' recruitment pitch. Come follow me, let the dead bury the dead. Put that one on the side of your building. See how many people stop when they drive by. In fact, if you read the Bible, you'll see that Jesus is constantly surprising his audience. Just when you think he's going to be sunny, he's kind of stormy in his words. And when you expect that he's going to be harsh, then he's gentle. When he crosses paths with those who you would think are going to get a scolding, prostitutes and pimps, he, he sits down and he eats with them. When he sees lepers and outcasts and a woman caught in adultery or a turncoat tax collector. I mean, so many of these people receive exquisite tenderness from Jesus. But when it comes sometimes to prominent religious leaders or potential new followers, he's harsh, cold. He even seems to be doing his best to repel them. 
or to push them away. Now, this passage in in Luke chapter 9 that we're going to unpack for a few minutes today, you could argue that in this case, what Jesus is really trying to do, these three men, is to help them understand exactly what they're asking for. On the surface, they seem to be interested in signing on to the cause, but what is the cause? What is it that they want? If we take a close look at how Jesus responds to these three men, Luke chapter 9, I think we'll learn a little bit about what it means to follow Jesus. This really, folks, this is a basic sermon. (laughs) Maybe you say they're all kind of basic, but a basic sermon. What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? That's the driving agenda in most of his teaching and certainly in this confusing, hard text. So let's have a look. First thing that we learn as we read through the text, is that following Jesus seems to have something to do with the kingdom. In every case, these men are asking, what must I do to follow you? I want to follow you. What does that look like? And in every case, Jesus responds by talking about the kingdom. They're talking about following. He's talking about entering, serving, and proclaiming the kingdom of God. Why? Because being a follower of God, being a Christian, is not simply a matter of little improvements in what you believe or of, of how you act. It's not just about ethical and doctrinal improvement. We somehow think better and act better, that that's what it is. Jesus is saying that to, be, to become a Christian, to follow him, is not just a quantitative thing, not just little increments nudging you along the line. It's a qualitative thing. This is something radically new and different. It's not simply a matter of improvement. It's a change in status. Remember we said that last week? A change in status. It's a change in nature. Let, let me put it this way. I think this is a, maybe a helpful way of understanding. To become a Christian means that you cross a border. Becoming a Christian means crossing a border. Think about what that looks like in our terms. Say you're in Canada. Eventually, these restrictions are going to lift, right? And you decide that you're going to cross the border into the U.S. Now, what do you do? You get into your car and you drive. And depending on where you live, you may have to drive a long way or it might be a short way. You might spend a great deal of time and a lot of gas and a lot of energy getting to the border. But the fact is, all of that time, all of that energy, all of that investment, all of that improvement in your location can still take you to the border, but it doesn't get you across, does it? Before you started your journey, you were 100% outside the kingdom of the U.S. Hey, wouldn't they love that way of describing themselves, the kingdom of the U.S.? But you're still 100% outside the kingdom of the U.S. You could drive for two solid days and get to the border, and you are still 100% outside the kingdom of the U.S., even with all of that improvement. What is it that gets you from one kingdom into the next? It's when you cross the border. Following Jesus means you're entering a new kingdom. It's not just a matter of little bits of doctrinal or ethical change and improvement. It's a transition of realms. You move from one realm into another, from the kingdom of the world into the kingdom of God. We've got lots of language that we use to describe it. One of the words that you may have heard used is the word conversion. It's actually, it's kind of a good word. 
Conversion means coming to Christ. Not a bad word, except that people tend to use it sometimes thinking that what gets converted is your lifestyle or, 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 or your belief system, and it's just that. And of course, some of that is entailed, and we hope that over the course of the years, those things will happen in your life. But conversion is something more radical and more revolutionary than that. Following Jesus means that you get translated from one kingdom into another. And what Jesus seems to be teaching throughout the New Testament is that the kingdom of God, the power of this heavenly, heavenly realm, this, this other world, comes into this world and is at work bringing healing to all of its hurts. The kingdom of God, it means that what's up there comes down here. The rule and the reign and the power and the presence of God And it doesn't just happen in some far-off, distant future. But it begins to happen now, kind of like like an acorn that gets planted into your life. And eventually it grows and it takes over. And Jesus talks again and again about how the kingdom of God begins now, through him, through what he's doing. When When you make Jesus your savior, when you make him your king, you cross a line. You cross a border. There's an immediate change. The change is in your status. You're no longer a citizen or a resident of one kingdom. You're a resident of another one. It's a change of status. And, and for now, it can feel, as you think about your own life, that the change is only partial. Maybe it still feels just like an acorn. I'm, I'm still limping along and still struggling with some of the things. But but it grows. Now it's an acorn, but it will be an oak. The, the language of the Bible uses terms uh, describing the kingdom about how it's here, but it's not yet fully here. We're given a foretaste, and what a taste it is. To be a Christian, though, is to say, as Jesus does, the kingdom of God is at hand, meaning it's arrived, it's come through the door, But it's not fully consummated. It's here, and yet it's still coming. It's already, and yet it's not yet. There's that tension to it. Some of us grew up reading the stories of J.M. Barry, where we read them to our kids or our grandchildren. J.M. Barry wrote the great stories of Peter Pan. And uh, Steven Spielberg made one of his films, a good film, I think, about the story. A different take on it. And in one scene... Wendy is talking to a now grown up Peter Pan, living in the real world, and he's forgotten who he is. He's forgotten where he came from. And she leans into him and she says, Peter, the stories, the stories are all true. In a sense, that's the gospel. What is the gospel? The gospel is that the kingdom of God is real that it's all true, that, that in fact we are going to live forever in a new creation, new heaven, new earth, and we're given just a little taste of it right now. It's what a Christian believes, that we are going to wear crowns and live in a place where there's no more decay or death, that there is a Camelot, if you'd like. That's, that's kind of what we believe, that there's a kingdom and it's coming, and it's, it's greater than anything that any fairy tale has ever imagined. 
it was one of C.S. Lewis's great observation that at the heart of many of these legends and fairy tales is an honest human yearning for what God has already promised, that there is a better world, and it's coming, right? It's coming. Yeah. The minute that you step over the border, the minute that you cross over, and Jesus is the name not just of your jewelry, but of your Savior and your King, the power of that future age, it it starts to fuse itself in you. And it begins a kind of renovation. It's partial, but it's real. And it's here, and yet it's still on the way. And Jesus says, so don't think about following me is simply a matter of saying, you're going to teach me a few new things and give me a few new rules. What are the new morals I have to follow? It's not just that. The moment that you come to him, you cross a line and you become a resident of a new kingdom. These, these three men in Luke chapter 9, they're scratching at something, but, but they're not quite getting it. They still see following Jesus kind of like Converting from being a member of the member of the Liberal Party to a conservative, or I was NDP and now now I'm in the Green Party. I've left the old party. I'm ready to follow you in your new party. And Jesus says, "No, you have you have no idea yet the radical nature of what God is up to in the world and what following me really means." So that's the first thing to follow. To follow Christ is to enter this new kingdom. You cross a border. It's a whole new world. Let's look, though, at, at specifically what these three men are bringing to Jesus and how Jesus responds. And I want to contrast the first man with the second and the third. Jesus heads them all off at the pass. Uh, he says to all of them, listen, you, you can't really know what it means to follow me until you understand the kingdom properly. But what is it that they don't understand? The first man doesn't understand the hardness of the kingdom. There are parts of it that are just difficult. But the second and the third man, they don't seem to understand the greatness of the kingdom. How absolutely worth it it is. For the first man, he's kind of impulsive. But the second and the third man, they're hesitant. The first man's an idealist. The second and the third man, they're realists. Neither kind of person really can enter the kingdom of God because at some core level they've misunderstood it. The first man doesn't understand that when the kingdom of God comes into your life, it inevitably brings you into conflict with the kingdoms of the world. Many of the things that you want, that you have sought after, maybe health, status, popularity, wealth, they may never come to you. Not in the kingdom of God. Look at Jesus. He doesn't have a party. He doesn't have the media in his back pocket. He doesn't have material wealth. He doesn't have any political standing. He doesn't have credentials. He doesn't have the right degrees, the right pedigree. He doesn't have any of those things because the kingdom of God doesn't revolve around those things. I will promise you none of it, Jesus seems to say. If you follow me, you may have none of it. What is it I promise you? I promise you peace. I promise you greatness of character. I promise you continual growth in joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, meekness, gentleness, self-control, the fruit of the Spirit. I promise you a life filled with meaning. I promise you courage. I promise you the presence of God. 
And I promise you all of these things, real glory, stuff that will last, your pedigree that won't last forever, your money will turn to dust, I will give you things that are eternal. That seems to be Jesus' response to the first man. He's, he's an idealist. But the next two men are realists. They're the ones who might kind of say, and boy, this has a lot of currency in our world, you know, everything is good in moderation, Jesus. But you can't go overboard with this religion stuff. We're not fanatics after all. There has to be some limits. If the first man doesn't understand the hardness of the kingdom, the second and third man, they don't seem to appreciate the greatness of the kingdom. Otherwise, they wouldn't come out of the gate by putting conditions on their obedience. And this is, this is where Jesus gets a lot of bad PR, I think, about his answer. Because it looks like he's being absolutely cold and hard-hearted. My father is about to die, the one man says. And I'd like to go and be at his funeral. And Jesus says, no, you've got to come with me. Let the dead bury the dead. Another says, I, I'd just like to go and say goodbye to my mother and my father. And she says, Jesus says again, no, you've got to come with me. Jesus says enough hard things in the gospel without making things harder. So I'd, I'd like to look carefully just at this little exchange with you, this conversation. The first thing we notice is that the conversation happens on the road. These are the people who are walking with Jesus. They're already with him. This isn't a disinterested crowd who've just shown up. No, these are his traveling companions. They're already a part of his company. Second thing to bear in mind is that it's absolutely clear in, in the law of the Jewish people, and this is a Jewish gathering at this point. These are Jewish followers of Jesus. The Jewish law is clear that if this young man's father is about to die, he wouldn't be there with Jesus. He would be at his bedside. There's no other place that you are asked, invited, compelled, that you needed to be. Put these things together, that they were already traveling, and, and that if, in fact, the man's father was on his deathbed, he's in the wrong place. And it may be that what the man is saying, Jesus, I'd like to sign up with you, but before I make a full commitment, I need to be with my father until he dies. Until he passes. Why? Because he may not like the choice that I'm making. He might disown me. In other words, when I'm absolutely sure that following you won't, won't alienate me from, from my father, then I'd be happy to come. The third guy is saying essentially the same thing. I'd like to follow you, but not yet. I've got to go check it out with my family, and then I'll be back. And Jesus looks at them both and says, you have to understand there is an urgency to this. There's an urgency to the kingdom. And if at the very beginning you're already putting conditions on your obedience, what's this going to be like down the road when things get really urgent, when the work is really important and is really necessary? You can't say, I'll follow you but first, or I'll follow you if only. You can't put barriers on it like that. You remember what we said earlier about the, the kingdom of God being, being the sort of the, the image of, of discipleship, of following Jesus, and being crossing a border. You can come right up to the border, but until you step across, you're, you're not into the new kingdom. Even if you've traveled thousands of miles to get there, 
You are still 100% outside of the kingdom until you take that step across the border. And here's the step. Jesus cannot be your Savior, and he cannot be your Lord until you remove the but-firsts and the if-onlys. If you say, I will obey you, and you have any ifs or buts, you're right up to the border. But you haven't stepped over yet. As soon as you say, Lord, I'll be happy to follow you, but there's one thing I need to sort out first. I'd be happy to follow you as long as... And What you're really saying is that that, that one thing is more important than what waits you on the other side of the border. I'm still king. This is my kingdom. I'm in the driver's seat. It seems to be what Jesus is driving at with these admittedly hard words. To follow me, Jesus says, is to enter a new kingdom. To follow me is to place me on the throne of your life. I'm king. And if there are conditions on it, you're still living in your own kingdom. Does that make sense? St. Augustine, a fourth century African bishop, eventually, but before he assumed that position, he, uh, he was a philosopher. Uh, he was a philosopher. He was living with a mistress, a beautiful woman. He went one day to hear a preacher, a great preacher, a man named Ambrose of Milan. And through Ambrose's preaching, he was absolutely convicted of the holiness of God and the beauty and the truth of the Ten Commandments. But Augustine loved this woman that he was with. And so he offered up a prayer one day, kind of a famous prayer. It's come down to us all the way through history. He said, O Lord, make me good, but not yet. Famous prayer. Uh, And I expect thousands, many, maybe millions of people have prayed that same prayer. O Lord, make me good, but, but not yet. If you haven't heard it that way, you you may have heard it this way. If you've been around Christian circles long enough, you've probably heard somebody say this. I I know I've turned to Jesus Christ as Savior, but I'm having trouble accepting him as Lord. You've heard something to that effect? The Savior part's okay. The Lord part, I'm really tripping over. I want you to understand that logically that's, that's actually kind of impossible. To make him king and to make him savior are really the same thing person says i'd like to follow you jesus but not if it means my career what you're really saying is that what gives my life meaning and significance purpose and value is my career that's my salvation the two are inevitably bound together whatever is your real joy whatever is your real source of meaning that is your lord And your Lord is your Savior. And you have to ask, is it adequate to the task? Whatever it is that you are trusting as your Lord is your salvation. They come and they go together. So when Jesus says, let the dead bury their dead, maybe what he means is anything that is more important to you than me is eventually going to hurt you. Because it will stop the power of my kingdom from flowing into your life and eventually it's going to let you down, whatever it is. Let's draw this up to a close by saying inevitably what probably needs to be said at this point. 
It means that for some of you who are listening or watching online, you realize that you are living outside of the kingdom of God. Maybe you knew that already. Maybe you're just hearing it again in a, in a fresh way today. You have a basic understanding of what Christianity is. You believe some of the ideas, some of the doctrines, but you know you've never really taken that step across the border. Can I say to you, to, to all of us, being Christian is not first an intellectual thing. It's not even a moral thing. It's an intensely radical, spiritual thing. It's the crossing of a border. Will you give him lordship in your life? Will you make him both savior and king? Because the two, the two absolutely have to go together. The last thing I want to say is in reference to Jesus' response to the third man. Verse 62, if you have your Bibles there. You see where Jesus says, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. Maybe that's a word to those of us who have already crossed the border. I, I think, sadly, it's possible to enter into the kingdom, to cross that border, and yet remain so distracted by what you've left behind that it creates a lot of pathology in your life. Jesus is using a metaphor that probably lots of us are not familiar with, but if you've actually ever hand-plowed a field, you know that if you keep looking back, there is no way that you're going to get a straight furrow. The only way to get a straight row is to keep your eyes affixed on what is ahead. Find one stable point off on the distance and keep your plow pointed at that. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, it says in the book of Hebrews. I once heard it put this way. Think for a minute about Frankenstein's monster. What was Frankenstein's monster? It was all kinds of dead flesh, just kind of grafted together. And then it needs a jolt of energy to bring it to life. But it's all artificial, isn't it? A lot of people will cross the border into this new kingdom, the kingdom of God, this new reality, but without realizing that what they're continuing to pray for is that God is going to bring a jolt of life to bring back all the little bits of dead flesh they're trying to graft onto themselves. I have Jesus. I've been adopted as a son or a daughter of God. I have glory. I have purpose. I have the fruit of the Spirit. But that's not enough. What I want is still a whole bunch of the stuff that I left back there. And I keep praying that God will answer animate all of that dead flesh that I want to sow onto my new life. Jesus can give you something radically new, but it doesn't coexist with what's old. If you put your hand to the plow, you can't keep looking back at what you've left behind. Not only does it bring all this pathology to your life, Jesus is pretty clear that it, it has a way of wrecking your service, your usability. Yeah. And God wants to use you. I mean, that's one of the most sacred, marvelous acts of dignity that there is in the world, that, that God would do what he does through us. And the idea that we could wreck that in ourselves, spend our lives 
doing nothing but wavy plowing. That's a tragic idea. Anyone who, who puts their hand to the plow, Jesus says, and looks back, is not fit for service in the kingdom of God. Believe it or not, that's actually good news. The whole text, the whole hard teaching is good news. Because you can, you can either give your life to him, which may be difficult, or you cannot give your life to him, which makes the future impossible. But as Jesus always does, he leaves us with the dignity of making the choice. And so there's a choice to be made. Choose this day who you will serve. Let me pray for us as we think about the choice. Father, we thank you that you you give us this strong message. Hard medicine, Lord, sometimes. We thank you that your son doesn't try to recruit us the way that so many other people do. Empty campaign promises. Telling us how great things are going to be and then later reneging on the promise and giving us nothing but bad news. Instead, Lord, you show us that your kingdom its not made of the stuff of this world. And that it does require a cost. But entering it, there is nothing like it. God, we realize you can take the feeblest and the filthiest of us And you can make us into dazzling, radiant, immortal beings. Pulsating, Lord, and overflowing with your greatness, with your goodness. That's what we were made for and nothing less. Anything less is beneath the dignity and nature that Jesus bestows to us. That the stories are all true that we were meant to live eternally, that there will be glory, that we're going to, going to drink in joy, we're going to be clothed in love. And so help us, Lord, to see that while the cost of commitment may be great, the cost of not committing is so much greater. And in these moments, wherever these words may find us, Help us, Lord, to commit ourselves fully to you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.